Good afternoon, Lafayette. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPL. It's a great afternoon, a little bit overcast. Looks like there might be some scattered showers uh, in the future for some of us around Acadiana. Just keep an eye out uh, if you're uh, out on the road. Do not want any accidents on an otherwise great Tuesday. I hope you guys have had a fantastic day so far. I know I have, but we got to jump in to some of the big issues of the day. First, uh, let's get right into it. Again, I'm going to start out with the approval-disapproval numbers because there is something pretty historic happening right now. Here we are, day 518 of the Biden administration, and he is 15.1 points underwater in his approval-to-disapproval rating, 39.5% approve. 54.6% disapproved. Now, why is that significant, Joe? You just said all this yesterday. Well, when you look at the analysis from places like 538, which which tracks statistics of all sorts, on day 518 of Trump's term, Trump's disapproval was was, uh, was 9.2 points underwater. I'll repeat that. On day 518 of the Trump administration, that would be June 21st, 2018, Trump's disapproval was 9.2 points higher than his approval. Joe Biden's disapproval On June 21st of 2022, his disapproval is 15.1 points higher. Joe Biden is now the most unpopular president in history, and he is, and 6% of Americans disapprove of him, or 6 more percent disapprove of him than they did of Trump at the same time in Trump's administration. That is significant. And all the while, the Democrats are still holding out hope that somehow, some way, the January 6th hearings are going to make some sort of a difference. And they're not. I know I'm beating the dead horse with you guys on this. But I need to share with you this story from NPR. NPR traveled to a Democratic district in Virginia and talked to swing voters. Kimberly Berryman lives in the countryside outside Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, Virginia, but drives 20 miles to the suburbs to do her shopping. She keeps a cooler in the trunk to keep her corn cold as she travels from store to store, trying to find the best deals on groceries. For Berryman, it's it's worlds away from the hearings about the January 6th insurrection going on at the U.S. Capitol. I got other things to do, she says with a laugh. Berryman, who works with special needs students, says she was shocked and scared by the attack at the Capitol, but she says she's more worried about price hikes and supply shortages than litigating January 6th. Just move on to something else, she said. Berryman says she usually votes for Democrats, including Abigail Spanberger, who currently represents the competitive 7th Congressional District in Congress, but Berryman said she'll consider voting for a Republican if they do a better job addressing her concerns about high prices. There are people out here that really can't afford it, and I'm one of them, she said. Voters like Berryman are testing whether Democrats can focus attention on the January 6th committee's findings 
while also convincing voters they're trying to address issues like rising prices. Their ability to balance what may determine if the part their ability to balance that may determine if the party can get its coalition to show up in the November midterms. The six Republicans running in today's primary to take on Spanberger face a different challenge with the hearings. There's not a clear frontrunner, but the leading candidates have played down the January 6th attack and won't say whether they would or would uh, whether they would have voted to certify the 2020 election. And they've rushed to align themselves with former President Donald Trump in a redrawn district that now leans more Democratic. Voters are more concerned with the prices at the pump and in the grocery store than they are January 6th. I've been telling you that for weeks. The data has shown that. But the Democrats are currently trying to get everybody focused on January 6th as though that is going to be what convinces voters that Republicans can't be trusted. Meanwhile, there are mountains and mountains of evidence that everything economically is actually kind of going to Democrats' plans. They want to attack the fossil fuel industry. They want the fossil fuel industry to either go out of business or change to renewable energy. On CNBC just uh, a few days ago, Representative Ro Khanna said, look, if oil companies had been honest about global warming and had diversified since the 1970s, we would have much more stable prices. Representative Rokana is clearly ignorant because we've been investing trillions of dollars in renewable energy since the 1970s, and renewable energy can't even power 10% of our electrical needs as a country. The energy prices are actually going according to the Democrats' plan. The problem is, it's hit along with every other conceivable problem that the Democrats have made worse, that the Biden administration has made worse. And we're now at the point where the Democrats are floundering and they want the oil companies to produce more oil and gasoline and get those prices down while also saying, we want, by the end of our term, to be uh, transitioning to renewable energy. You cannot have it both ways. It cannot happen. But the Democrats are so sold on this idea that we have to move to renewable energy that while they're lamenting the fact that this is hurting their poll numbers right now, they're really kind of excited. And Ro Khanna is out there, and the Democrats and the Biden administration are all out there saying, well, this is all the energy company's fault for not investing and not producing more. But really deep down they're giggling because finally the fossil fuel companies aren't producing and people are struggling to get more gas and they're going to have to do other things. Maybe they will go out and buy an electric vehicle. Woohoo! I've told you once and I've told you a couple dozen times. America cannot afford nor can it sustain a sudden mass switch to electric vehicles. Our power grid, among other things, cannot support a mass transition to electrical vehicles. We already have power grid problems in the country. It's, uh, it's wildfire season in California. They don't have the power grid capable of keeping people's homes lit up while also trying to combat forest fires and wildfires. How can you expect California a place that likes to invest 
in the renewables and all these progressive uh, wish list ideas, how can you expect California to be good at any of this? Or if you can't expect California to be good at any of this, how can you expect the rest of the country to be able to transition? You can't do it. It's not feasible. Joe Biden is 15 points underwater on average in his approval rating because everything he and his administration have touched has died or is dying. And the Democrats in the House and in the Senate want you to focus on January 6th because they really and truly think that somehow, some way, that's going to be what gets voters to remember that the Democrats are the way to go, not the Republicans. I have links to this, by the way, the NPR story. I have a link to that up. If you go to kpl965.com and you look uh, near the top of the screen, you will see the Joe Cunningham show notes for today. And you will find a link there toward the bottom on this NPR story and more. We're going to get to that more coming after after this break here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. If you want to see the show notes for the the day, see all the topics that I kind of want to hit on today. Some of them I may miss. Some of them just headlines you may want to be aware of. So you can be the most informed radio listeners out there. Go check it out. KPL965.com. Look for Joe Cunningham show notes, uh, SCOTUS, Uvalde Police, and January 6th. I don't have the emotional energy to talk about the Uvalde Police yet. We're going to do that after the bottom of the hour news break because I really still need to kind of gather my thoughts on that one. In the meantime, we need to talk about the most important Supreme Court case that dropped this morning. Dobbs did not drop and Bruin did not drop. Those are the two cases that virtually everybody are looking at. Right now, Dobbs being the case on abortion, Bruin being the Second Amendment rights case out of New York, I think. The Supreme Court, by the end of the month, will drop those two opinions. For the Bruin case, I think I'm going to have my buddy Stephen Gutowski of The Reload uh, call in and kind of explain that issue to us. Hopefully, we can have that and kind of talk about that issue and why that's so important. The Dobbs case, of course, we've already talked about because of the leaked draft opinion. But Carson versus Macon dropped today. It is the most important Supreme Court case that nobody was paying attention to. Arguably even more important than the uh, religious rights case involving the coach. Uh, I forget which state he's from, but this one's out of Maine. Carson v. Macon was decided 6-3 by the Supreme Court on an ideological split with John Roberts, yes, with the conservatives on this. And actually, John Roberts has been very good on this particular issue, the free exercise issue. With the exception, I think, of the Masterpiece Cakes case. But the, the ideological split was a little bit different there. John Roberts has been very good on the free exercise issue of the First Amendment, and it shows in his writing on this case. In Maine, there is a tuition reimbursement program because there are several rural districts in Maine, rural school districts, that don't have a secondary school, don't have a high school. So you can send your kids to a private school in the state through its tuition program will reimburse you that tuition. But the program made it clear that that was only for non-sectarian schools, meaning non-religious schools. It became a Supreme Court case, Carson v. Macon. 
And the Supreme Court today ruled that that was a violation of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Remember, the First Amendment of the Constitution says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. What the Supreme Court's conservatives decided in a 6-3 case today was this. And I'm quoting from Robert's opinion here. Maine's non-sectarian requirement for its otherwise generally available tuition assistance payments violates the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Regardless of how the benefit and restriction are described, the program operates to identify and exclude otherwise eligible schools on the basis of their religious exercise. In other words, what Roberts is saying is that you cannot exclude an institution from a tuition program like this on the basis of its religious bent. You cannot do it. This court is elevating the religious aspects of the First Amendment above others. That's the complaint of the left. The left is losing their minds over this. The CNN analyst Jeffrey Tugentubin uh, and others, at uh, Jennifer Rogers, both, both CNN legal analysts, are out there lamenting this. A lot of folks on the left are lamenting this decision. Roberts clearly spelled it out. A neutral benefit program in which public funds flow to religious organizations through the independent choices of private benefit recipients do not offend the Establishment Clause. See, the left is still arguing that separation of church and state is a thing. And it's not. It's poorly inferenced from the First Amendment. Kind of like Roe versus Wade was poorly inferenced from poorly uh, inferenced rights in the, in the Constitution. There is no such thing as separation of church and state. It is bad legal precedent. The First Amendment says that Congress shall not set up a national religion. There will be no governing religion in the country. And there will be no prohibiting anybody from exercising their religion in the public square. That's what the First Amendment actually promises. Now, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, more progressive jurisprudence basically said, well, in order to prevent us from violating the Establishment Clause, we need to establish that the absence of religion is the only way to ensure the Establishment Clause isn't broken. The problem is, and my buddy Eric Erickson, who's got a national radio show, explains it pretty well. Secularism is a religion. The absence of God is not the absence of religion. Secularism itself, as it is practiced, especially by the progressive left, is an established religion. It has its own religious tenets. And when you set up secularism or atheism as the default, you are establishing a religion. And that's ultimately where we've gotten to, and the court is now trying to push back on that. The court is now pushing back on that with the Carson versus Macon case, with the Trinity Lutheran case that came before this, that this legal precedent established today was based on. Sonia Sotomayor, uh, uh, Stephen Breyer, lamenting the uh, destruction of the separation of church and state philosophy, which doesn't exist. 
Jeffrey Tubin, Jennifer Rogers, legal analyst at CNN, lamenting this. The left losing its mind. They're apoplectic on social media about this. God forbid taxpayer dollars are used by a family that want to send their kids to a good school. This is a victory for religious liberty, and it's a victory for school choice. And it drives the left absolutely bananas. The Supreme Court made the right ruling on this. The Supreme Court did absolutely the right thing here in a 6-3 decision with the three progressives saying, no, we have a separation of charge and state, which doesn't exist. This is a neutral benefit program, but to exclude a religious institution from it on the basis of its religion is itself unconstitutional. That's what the Supreme Court said, and they're right, and we should be celebrating this. But the progressives are losing their mind. We're going to take our bottom of the hour news break. When we come back, the new information out about the Uvalde police on the day of the Robb Elementary School shooting should get your blood boiling. If you haven't heard it already, we've got more on that here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you'd like to call in, be part of the program. This story has just been infuriating. 11 officers, including Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo, were inside Robb Elementary within three minutes of a gunman entering on May 24th, a law enforcement source close to the investigation tells CNN. As new reports provide closer look at what officers were doing as they waited more than an hour to confront the shooter. After the gunman fired at officers and holed up in connecting classrooms 111 and 112, where he shot and killed 19 students and two teachers, Officers remained stationed in an adjacent hallway. Arredondo, who has been identified by other officials as the incident commander on scene, had previously told the Texas Tribune that officers had found the classroom doors were locked and reinforced with a steel jam, hindering any potential response or rescue. Efforts were made to locate a key to unlock the door, he said. Yet preliminary evidence suggests none of the officers had attempted to open either of the doors until moments before taking down the gunman, according to the source, and revealed, among other details in reporting from the Texas Tribune and the Austin American Statesman. What's more, by the way, it's now looking like the door was never locked and officers were armed and had a ballistic shield in the school within minutes of a psychopath gunning down 19 kids and two teachers. Texas police commander uh, Steve McCraw. Three minutes after the shooter entered the Robb Elementary, there was sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to neutralize the subject. The only thing stopping them was the on-scene commander. 21 people, 19 of them elementary school children, are dead because law enforcement at the scene did nothing. It's not a gun control issue. It's a mental health issue. And it's a failure of law enforcement issue. Every story that comes out about this shooting has become worse and worse, not because of what was, has been discovered about the shooter or the kids 
the victims, but what was discovered of police and how inept they were the entire time. Within three minutes, they could have taken down the shooter. And they didn't do it. They stood around in a hallway, having not even checked the doors, which were not locked. And for 58 minutes, a gunman was inside two classrooms with numerous children and teachers. 21 victims. Two teachers, 19 kids died because the police stood around outside the classroom door and did nothing, all because the on-scene commander was incapable of doing his job. So, yeah, you can tell me maybe we need to look at, uh, at gun policy. Maybe we need to look at school security policy. None of that matters when the people who are supposed to be there doing the work of protecting the potential victims in that scene were doing nothing and allowed 21 people, 19 of them being children. 19 children, two teachers dead because of incompetent leadership in the law enforcement of Uvalde School District. You can bet that more and more law enforcement organizations, including, by the way, Borders and Custom, uh, uh, Border Patrol and Customs, will absolutely continue to throw this police chief, the on-scene commander, and Uvalde police under the bus because they're not going down for the ineptitude of the, of the commanding police on scene. It is outrageous. It is unconscionable that the protect and serve mentality went out the window the moment a gunman walked into an elementary school. There is no training out there. And believe me, I've gone and looked and I've talked with folks. There's no training out there that tells you to sit around and wait for that long. Every story that law enforcement that was on the scene has told, the official, the official party line stance from the commanding officer in that department has been debunked. There need to be some very serious consequences. It is unconscionable. 232-1542. Now, speaking of this topic, I need to go into something I thought about bringing up yesterday, but I didn't because I wanted to wait and see. I wrote about it at Red State. I mentioned it in the show notes yesterday. Eric Greitens, former governor of Missouri, uh, was forced to step down as governor uh, because of allegations of uh Violent sexual behavior, blackmailing, and more allegations have since come out uh, detailing spousal and child abuse. Greitens is, seems to be a sociopath. Former Navy SEAL. He claims in a new ad that he is a Navy SEAL. 
Uh, that's not the worst thing in the ad, but it, it, it bears noting that the, the Navy actually didn't let him back into the SEAL program. In fact, they put him back on active reserve duty, but for nothing more than a desk job. But in the ad, he claims he's a Navy SEAL. Uh, and there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of news stories, a lot of news organizations out there digging, uh, wanting to know if he, if the Navy condones the ad that Greitens dropped yesterday. What he did in this ad is he, with some guys dressed in military getup, uh, he called uh, for his supporters to go rhino hunting, as in R-I-N-O, Republican in name only. Called on them to go rhino hunting. He had a shotgun, he claimed to be a Navy SEAL, and he talked about going after his enemies. Everyone on the right and the left condemned that ad. With Uvalde so recently happening, it's obviously in very poor taste. With so many high-profile uh, lunatics out there who have gone and tried to kill people in the name of politics... You know, people who have gone even after, you know, Steve Scalise of Louisiana. It's just in poor taste. It's also violent and pretty sociopathic. Now, he went on radio interviews today and claimed that, oh, the, all of his supporters knew this was in jest, blah, 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 blah. Eric Greitens has a history of sociopathic, sexually abusive behavior. He should not be in the U.S. Senate. He's running. He's trying to run under the Trump banner. Trump has not made an endorsement, although uh, Don Jr.'s girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, is on or was on the Greitens team. Not sure if she still is, uh, but Greitens really wants the Trump endorsement. I don't think Trump has made an endorsement in that one. But there are numerous high-profile Republicans who are lining up against Greitens. Josh Hawley, uh, U.S. Senator from Missouri, who was the attorney general when uh, Greitens was governor. Uh, Hawley is the one who publicly went after Greitens and, and essentially forced him to step down before running for U.S. Senate. Hawley uh, has endorsed one of the candidates. Which, which candidate was it? There, there's two main uh, Republican candidates to be looking out for. One is the current attorney general, Eric Schmidt. The other is Vicki Hartzler. Vicki Hartzler is, uh, she, what, what position does she currently have? I forget what she currently is in the state. Um, but she is being supported by Josh Hawley, uh, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, uh, other conservatives are lining up behind Schmidt. The problem right now is that Greitens is up about three points over Schmidt, and Hartzler is about three points behind Schmidt. So within a, a, a mix of about, uh, about six-point difference uh, from Greitens to Hartzler. The problem is that Missouri is not a majority state. It's just a plurality state in the primary. So all Greitens needs is the plurality when it comes time to vote. And their primary is not tonight, but it's coming up soon. Greitens and Hart, uh, I'm sorry, Schmidt and Hartzler need to come to a decision quickly. One endorse the other and the other drop out the race. Uh, because you cannot have somebody like Greitens 
in there in the U.S. Senate. He will just be a problem for Republicans and guaranteed he can make that normally Republican seat vulnerable. Missouri Republicans can do better. Now, why am I talking about Missouri? Before we go to break, let me explain. Right now, as I've told you repeatedly, Republicans stand a really good chance of taking back the House and a pretty decent chance of taking the Senate. The problem is that bad candidate selection in Missouri, in Georgia, and in Pennsylvania have actually put the possibility of taking back the Senate in a little bit more jeopardy than Republicans feel like they should be in. Greitens is a lunatic. Dr. Oz is not a Republican. Actually, Greitens was a Democrat five minutes before he ran for governor in 2016. Greitens was actually given a tour of the, D, uh, of the, of the DCCC because he was contemplating a run for Congress as a Democrat. He was a liberal Democrat up until he decided to run for governor a few years back. Greitens is looking to get a hold of power. He's not actually political. He's just a lunatic, a sociopath, clearly. Dr. Oz is not a Republican. Herschel Walker has a lot of baggage that's actually dragging him down right now. He could still very much win in Georgia, but Republicans really and seriously need to sit down after this midterm and say, okay, we've got to figure out how to get better candidates. Democrats are looking at a possibility of a decade or more of being in the minority unless Republicans uh, drop the ball, which they could very well do. 232-1542, let's take a break. When we come back, a couple more of the topics I wanted to talk about for the day and your calls here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542. We've got a few minutes left in the program if you want to call in. But in the meantime, so Donald Trump's team has been blindsided today. Politico got a scoop in its uh, more in its um, in its morning newsletter, the Politico playbook. Apparently, somebody on Trump's team before the 2020 election okayed a documentary filmmaker to bring his team and just kind of hang around Trump and the Trump family during the campaign and through the 2020 election and out in the aftermath of the 2020 election. The filmmaker has a lot of footage from January 6th and his team was around the president and the president's family throughout that whole transition time. Somebody found out about it, told the January 6th committee, and now this documentary filmmaker is working uh, with the January 6th committee. Uh, the documentarian is named Alex Holder. Uh, he, has, he was doing a documentary on, uh, in 2020 on Donald Trump and his inner circle. Uh, when we began this project in September 2020, Holder said, we could have never predicted that our work would one day be subpoenaed by Congress. As a British filmmaker, I had no agenda coming on to this. We simply wanted to better understand who the Trumps were and what motivated them to hold on to power so desperately. This is blindsided Trump's team. Nobody apparently really knew that this documentary team was around Trump. 
Uh, per Robert Costa of CBS, Trump campaign folks recall a film crew coming to HQ at least once. They also remember it being odd because campaign's legal team seems, seems surprised as if it was an unvetted project. The campaign's lawyers were like, huh, what is this? What is going on today? They saw it as another side project from the family slash Trump confidants. Per New York Times, Maggie Haberman, a very small group of people had knowledge of this documentary project and a lot of Trump advisors were surprised to see it existed. As of this morning, senior campaign officials were unaware of the project, according to one former official. Meanwhile, the Rolling Stones, Nikki McCann, Ramirez, and Aswin uh, Subsang, I cannot actually say the quote that was from one of the from a member of the Trump team. What the F is this? Is the quote from a member of the Trump team. Former administration and campaign officials tell Rolling Stone they had no idea a film crew had months of access to the former president and his family. Look, this is one of those situations where it's it is actually kind of bad for Trump. To be honest, it, it, it is it is bad for Trump when you you have this committee that's looking into everything and you have apparently months of footage that Congress has asked for in investigating Trump. It's not necessarily a good thing because some of the stuff that we've seen coming out is not actually doesn't look good on Trump. Here's the thing, though, before you guys call and get mad at me for saying that or send messages to the station or whatever, hear me out. None of it makes a difference. Yes, it doesn't look great for Trump. And yeah, there are some things that Trump did that were probably messed up. But none of this makes a difference because remember what I said when I opened the show. Everyone is more concerned about gas prices, grocery prices. They're concerned about inflation. They're concerned about all of their financial issues right now. There's a not insignificant number of people watching as their retirement starts to fizzle a little bit. They're getting ready for retirement and their retirement funds are fizzling a little bit. There's a not insignificant number of people who cannot find work, who cannot afford to go to school. There's a not insignificant number of people deeply affected by the policies of the Biden administration. So yeah, there may be some things of the January 6th committee that may uncover or have uncovered that don't look great on Donald Trump. None of it makes a difference. And we know this because we have that NPR story that I linked, which, by the way, is on my show notes on KPL965.com. But we also have tons and tons of data on the list of things that are important to voters right now. January 6th is on page two at best. And it's a bulleted list with multiple columns on page one. There are lots and lots of issues that voters are currently very worried about. And until the Democrats figure out how to actually address those problems, January 6th means nothing to the voters who will be going to the polls in November. All right, 23-hour break for the Joe Cunningham Show, but don't run off yet. Offsides is coming, and once again, Mark and I will be filling in for Shannon and Brandon, so stick around. You'll be hearing more of me, some more of Mark, all that and more here on News Talk, kpel965.com. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show, and check out the podcast of the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the show notes on our website, and I'll talk to you guys on the Joe Cunningham Show tomorrow.